In this episode, I chat with one of the founding members of the influential British indie rock band from the 1990s, Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. In 1987, in South London, the musical visionaries James Robert Jim Bob Morrison and Les Fruitback Carter laid the groundwork for something extraordinary. Emerging from the remnants of the 80s pop and glam rock scene, Carter redefined indie music with a distinctive blend of power pop and punk, earning their stripes and a place on the soundtrack for a generation. In the early 90s, their performances became legendary spectacles, featuring dazzling bright stage lights and rowdy stage diving crowd scenes. Carter's infectious energy, playful puns, and quirky lyricism propelled their debut album, 101 Damnations, to critical acclaim. The release of 30-something in 1991 propelled them into the top 10 in the UK albums chart. Singles like Bloodsport for All, which addressed racism and military life during the Gulf War, made waves and at one point faced a band from the BBC. The band's socially conscious punk pop anthems resonated with the audiences in the UK and abroad. In 1992, Carter headlined the infamous Glastonbury Festival, playing songs from their newly released third LP, 1992 The Love Album. 1993 set the stage for their next record, Post Historic Monsters, which they toured globally. Carter USM's reign extended to a tumultuous US tour in 1997, marking a poignant chapter leading to the band's eventual split after a decade of rocking the planet. Fruitbat shares intimate details of the band's legacy, the farewell, and eventual reunion gigs that solidified the enduring impact of Carter's music. Whether you're a seasoned fan or a newcomer, there's something for everyone in Carter's music. And as a final twist in this narrative, it's worth noting that Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine had four top 10 albums, including a number one, and 12 top 40 singles over the span of their 10-year career. They played more than 800 gigs and even found themselves sued by the Rolling Stones at one point for using the lyrics, Goodbye Ruby Tuesday, in one of their songs. Welcome to the Homie Hut Podcast. I'm your host, John Facundo. And on this show, I shoot the breeze with some of my friends about their everyday lives. Some of them have managed to go on to do some pretty cool stuff. I'm talking to regular people who sometimes go on to do extraordinary things. So kick back, listen in, and enjoy the show. This is the Homie Hub Podcast. If you're in school, you can't wait to hear yourself. You don't. Les, how are you, sir? I'm all right, thank you very much. It's nice to talk to you. It's been a while. It's been a long while. <laughs> A lot of people don't know your story or the history of the band, but they do know that I'm a rabid Carter fan and have been and always will be. Um, Carter's always been my number one band. Yeah. Let's start from the very, very beginning. Talk to us about the formation of Carter. How did it come about? Well, okay. So Carter with me and Jim Bob uh, got together mainly because uh, our previous band kind of fell apart and um, we had ideas that didn't fit with the the format of the band we were in. Jamie Wednesday was the band we were in before, which is a very sort of standard format of a band. 
but we wanted to have samples and we wanted it to be noisy and ugly. So uh, that's why we ended up using backing tapes instead of having a full band. It was just the two of us with the guitars and singing. And, you know, I'd already, I've been friends with Jim since 1979 or something. So it was, I, I, I really enjoyed writing songs with him, so we just continued with that, with the new thing. And then it just took off from there. Kind of, slowly. <laughs> by a way, by a way of a few uh, back bars and... Yeah, empty venues, nobody being interested in us for a couple of years, but we were, we were quite obstinate. <laughs> we, did, we, just, we were just determined to carry on, and uh, eventually people started getting the hang of it. You spoke to the backing tracks and just you and Jim playing guitars. That was mm -hmm. the, the setup for the band. Yep. Um, so was that done out of necessity or was it something that you just thought, hey, this is a novel idea? Because at the time, everyone was a four-piece, a five-piece. Mm, some of it came from the fact that just prior to forming the band, uh, Jim and I were busking, mm -hmm. and it was at that time, very early on with buskers, that when buskers started using backing tapes, so there'd, there'd be a saxophone player with, with backing tracks, and we kind of had this idea that, oh, that'd be quite good, isn't it? We don't need a drummer, we don't need a bass player, we'll just have a tape. Brilliant, let's do that. <laughs> well, and you guys were pioneers in that, because now you see it everywhere, right? I mean, any pop star that goes out, whether they have four or five people on stage, they have backing tapes. Yeah, every everybody does. Yeah, you know that was unheard of back in the day. Oh, we we had sound engineers refusing to work with us because we didn't have a proper drummer. Mm. So yeah, I mean it was very unheard of. Apart apart from maybe rappers and and pop stars, you know, just turning up and doing one or two songs in nightclubs and that. Um, especially rock and roll bands weren't supposed to have backing tracks. Although, you know, yeah, must you must say you know, Queen were using backing tapes quite early on. So, you know, what we weren't exactly the first people to ever do it. <laughs> you just did it in such a unique style that it just took the world by storm. Well, it's, it's certain bits of the world by storm, yeah. <laughs> a few roads in South London. <laughs> <laughs> From Jamie Wednesday to the inception of Carter. You went on to have how many um, singles and how many hits? Uh, I think we had twelve top forty singles and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven albums that were in the top forty. One of which got to number one. Uh, we didn't get a number one single, which was still a bit of a disappointment. But we did get as far as number seven which was quite hard to do in those days. It's the easiest right. to do in our days. So a lot of the listeners don't um, know much because it's American audience. Sure. Um, even yeah. though Carter did make a a stand here, a good stand actually in, in the US, it's primarily been a UK and European band. Yeah, I mean, our, our success in UK and, 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 and the rest of Europe wasn't really repeated in the US. <laughs> we did have a go, <laughs> but yeah. So I remember one single that you put out was Bloodsport for All. 
And that was mm -hmm. controversial. Can you tell us why that was controversial? It wasn't really controversial. It was only because it was a, it was a kind of um, it was a comment on the uh, the British Army at the time, and it was during the Iraq War. I'm trying to just trying to. It's quite a long time ago now, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was only controversial in in the fact that the BBC refused to pay it. So, you know, I don't think the subject at all is really that controversial. It's just a comment on the times. And then you went on to do Glastonbury. Yeah, that was in 1992. So back in history, we had to learn Glastonbury. A lot of people don't believe that we did that. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, don't, I don't believe we did it either. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyone that doesn't believe it can look it up on YouTube because it's there. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about that. How how was that? How was it going from playing venues that are one or two people to Glastonbury headlining? Well, the thing that happened was the year before. Really, uh, we had we we didn't headline Reading, but we played in Reading Festival. We were second on the bill, and that's kind of when it really got suddenly very big, and we were playing to you know sixty thousand people or whatever. Um, Glastonbury itself, I remember at the time thinking, well, yeah, that's quite the natural, it's the natural place to go next. It's the next thing we were going to do. And, well, we were a bit surprised that we got asked to headline it, but it didn't feel like it was wrong at the time. And I think we did a good job. I think, you know, everyone liked it. You know, I've spoken to quite a lot of people afterwards that were there and said, you know, it's the best gig they've ever been to. And that puts us in the era of the Love Album, which ironically you're doing a re-release. Um, That's right. Soon, and one of, one of the CDs on the re-release of the Love Album, it's a box set, has got the Glastonbury gig, the full audio of the Glastonbury gig, which I didn't even know existed until the, the guys at Chrysler said, "Oh, we've got this." I went, "Oh, I didn't know you had that." <laughs> <laughs> it. It's quite, it's quite nice. I, I had to sign quite a lot of them today. It's very nicely packaged. <laughs> so then after the Love Album, you put out Post of Stark Monsters. Post of Monsters, yep. That was 93. That was the year after. Uh, Worry Bomb. And Worry Bomb was the year after that. And Worry Bomb, you went from a two-piece to a three-piece. We did, yeah. We got Wes in on drums. The infamous Wes. The infamous Wes, yeah. God bless him. Um, yeah, that was a funny thing. We, we, it's funny enough, I was, we were discussing that today because I saw Jim Bob mm. today and we were discussing that today why we ended up having the drummer. And I said, it's because we just come off tour, we were supporting Madness in, in an arena tour and we just loved the way that they had the full band and it sounded amazing and we felt a little bit restricted, just us two and back in tape. Um and I think that's kind of, yeah, because we, we kind of felt we'd gone as far as we could with the backing tape. I think, in retrospect, I think we should have just stuck with the backing tape, really. I think we should have just, you know, you, you know, Pet Shop Boys kind of had a band for a little while, didn't they? But they, they always come back to... I don't know, in fact, you know, when Pet Shop Boys played Glastonbury last year, they did have a full band behind them, you know, but it's still the Pet Shop Boys, just those two, there's mainly those two guys. And that's what I, I think retrospectively that's that's what we should have really done yeah 
But, you know, it was an adventure having a band, you know, because it wasn't just a three piece. It did expand even further later on. Right. Later on, it expanded <laughs> to a six piece. Yeah. And some gigs, it was a seven piece because we got a saxophone player at some gigs. That's as right. Well. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough um, and honored enough to be on a tour with that six piece as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Th- th- those yep. were good times. That was a crazy tour. <laughs> <laughs> we we can get into that later as well if you want. <laughs> so uh Worry Bomb was one of those interesting albums to me because it had such great music. It had the sonic element of drums, but it didn't really do anything. Um, not sales wise. No, I mean let's get tattoos was a single um in the uk young offenders mum was a single in the uk they kind of were they got inside the top 40 but they didn't get into the the top 10 or anything i always thought that that album should have received a lot more credit i just think at the time i think in those days as well the music press was very influential on whether people bought your records or not you know, it was kind of the equivalent of what I guess Twitter would be nowadays, or you know, or you know, or all the other ones, TikTok, etc. Um, but by, I think by the time it came to Worry Bomb, the music press had kind of got bored of us, and they wanted to do something else, and kind of Britpop kind of hit off, and they found that a lot more interesting because they'd done us over and over again, you know. We 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 we, played, we were on the cover so many times. They probably decided they needed another face. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that don't know, Carter had a massive promotional presence. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the music press was a it was very a lot more important in those days. You know, the actual physical papers, music, uh, Melody Maker, and the NME in the UK in particular, um, they could make or break a band quite easily. Um, right, which was great when they loved you. It wasn't so great when they didn't love you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so after Worry Bomb in '95, we get to infamous Cooking Vinyl album, uh, World Without Dave. Oh uh, yeah, I uh, World Without Dave EP, and then oh, well, that was a mini album, wasn't it? And then and then the world, and that, then I blame the government album. Yeah. Which was actually finished after we'd split up. Mm, right. So that, that's, that's the important thing in between that time. Around <laughs> <laughs> about halfway through recording that last album, we split up. And then we had a contractual obligation to finish it to, and, and then to put it out. So half of, the, half of the tracks on that album are basically demos. They're not really properly recorded. Which is a bit of a shame because there's some good songs on that album. There are some good songs on that album. In fact, you'd never know that they were demos as well. They're really good. So that 1997 infamous year was the year that Carter did split up. Can you talk a little bit about that and what led to that? Yeah, it was. It was actually. It was actually the America's fault. Yes. <laughs> there was. <laughs> no, it wasn't really. I mean, we right from the beginning, Jim and I had a pact that when it stopped being fun, we'd stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And during that tour, 
various reasons, um, it stopped being fun. So that was it. We, we had a little, we, we were in Baltimore, I think it was, and I went to a cafe and sat down and Jim said, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, oh, I don't want to do it anymore either. Let's split it up. And he went, all right then, have a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that day, actually, as I was on that tour. But you didn't tell anybody about it. No. You all were very quiet and the show went on. And we still had several more dates in the US. And then you did a few more in like Switzerland and yeah. the UK as well. And finished out that year strong. Yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. And then we, we finished we finished the last gig we played that year was um the uh, Gilfest. Mm-hmm. That was that was actually a really good gig. But I mean I don't think the rest of the band knew that we were splitting up at that point. Well we had split up basically. <laughs> <laughs> you decided to part ways and pursue your own interests. And you started another band. Well, first of all, I mean, when after Carter, I just didn't want to be in a band ever again. I wanted to do something else. And I, and I kind of got into uh, coding websites and stuff, and I thought that's that's what I was going to do next. And then after about uh, not even six months, songs started creeping into my head <laughs> and so I thought oh I know what I'll do I'll just try I'll just record a few songs and write a few songs and then they got recorded and then I thought oh why don't I just put out a CD <laughs> I, oh why don't I form a band <laughs> why don't I form a label yeah why don't I form a label so I can release those CDs and don't have to get involved with record companies and, and all that and and you know and also the first few records that I put out, CDs that I put out, were just me playing everything with drum machines as well. So it's very easy for me to record at home. Um, didn't really record with a full band until I got to Australia with the Australian lineup. That was the first time I think we recorded with a full band. But, you know, that's 23 years ago now, all of that. And the band's still going through various lineups, <laughs> including one... One with a certain guy that's on the other end of this in one of the lineups. That's right. Ah. That's right. We did a tour, um, my brother and I, and I want to say we were version eight of Abdu Japarov. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very early on. Yeah. Yeah. And and how many are there now? I've actually, I think it's like 36. Wow. The last time I counted. It might be more than that. But I'm, I've actually determined, I am determined that the current lineup is going to stay stable as much as I can. I'm really, really, because I'm really enjoying the current lineup. It's a, it's a re- really nice bunch of lads. We get on really well. We never have any arguments about anything. Very professional, but also immense fun at the same time and they know me they know that I'm really crap so when I make a mess up when I'm singing the song they they know what I'm doing and they'll just they'll just watch for me and then I go okay we're back in (laughs) so let's start let's talk about Abdu Jafarov a little bit where did the name come from well it's the name of a a cyclist from Uzbekistan uh, Jamaluddin Abdu Jafarov who when we were recording that final 
Carter album. We were also watching the Tour de France when we were having breaks. And Abdul Japrov was one of the riders that was really impressive on that tour. And he's, he's a bit of a punk rock cyclist. He was well known for knocking other people off their bikes as he was trying to win, win a race. And he even ran over a policeman at one point because he wasn't looking where he was going. Um, and I just said to Jim at the time, I said, if I ever have another band, I'm going to call that band Andrew Jaffaroff. And so I did. <laughs> the the interesting thing about it for me is, I, I, I can't remember, I think we were in New Jersey or something on that tour, and some random fella popped in because he saw the name, and for some reason he thought it was going to be a Russian band that was playing Russian folk songs. All oh, right, yeah, well, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'll never forget that. That always cracks me up. <laughs> While you were doing Abdu Japarov and after Carter split up, you and Jim decided to put Carter back together for some festivals. Yeah, well, kind of uh, initially for a one gig, where we decided that um, because of the way that the band ended. It was kind of on a low note. We wanted to have a proper, like a reunion gig, and do a like playback at our favourite venue, which is the Brixton Academy. Mm-hmm. Sell it out, and then we'd have a happy memory for the for, for for the band, you know, rather than the way that it kind of all fell apart at the end. And it it worked really. I mean, we that the the ticket sold out in six minutes, and then we added the Glasgow gig to go with it. Um, and just went really well, and that was it. We thought that's it. And then I think it's either the next year or something, and someone said, Do you want to do it again? And we thought, Yeah, why not? It was quite fun, you know. Uh, and so we did it a few times, including we did the Beautiful Days Festival, we did Bearded Theory Festival, um, and we played in Manchester and Leeds, and back in, no, where else did we play? Southampton. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. we did we did a few gigs like that. As as it wasn't it wasn't getting the band back together. It was kind of like a reunion thing, really. It wasn't like a reformation. Uh, so we did a couple of batches of, of reunion gigs where we just do a couple of gigs, and they were brilliant and absolutely mad and full. Um, but it was good fun. And then the last one we did was in 2014, and the proviso of doing that gig was that it was definitely going to be the last one that we do because we do we both were talking about we i don't really want to do it i don't i'm not really into it and then we got persuaded okay if it if it's definitely definitely the last one you're ever going to do will you do it <laughs> and we went hmm yeah all right then okay i mean and it turned out it was a brilliant gig we had you know it was it was great and um, and it was a nice way again to end on a high note with sold out gigs and everyone loving it. And out of those gigs, you've got several releases as well, live releases. Oh yeah, there's videos and stuff of yeah, of, of yeah. DVDs and whatnot. Yeah. You 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 played essentially you played each album in its entirety. Oh yeah, we did that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did four out we did two albums a night. Um, uh, one year at the Brixton Academy and, and the, the Forum in Kentish Town, which is a slightly smaller venue, but it was still rammed. Both of them were rammed. Um, 
that was quite fun because there were some of those songs we hadn't played before at all, ever live. So we, we had to learn how to do them. I even had to pick up a double bass to do one of them as well, which was kind of odd. <laughs> well, I, I happened to be at a couple of those reunion gigs and mm -hmm. the sheer amount of energy that you and Jim still had was palatable. They were great. They were amazing. It was a good time. They were really, uh, really strong. Yeah. And I think the fans in the crowds uh, really appreciated the reunions. Oh, I mean, we still go. Probably every day we get someone asking us if we're going to do another one, and the answer is always no. <laughs> so that that segues into my next question: What would it take for another one? <laughs> we, we did a radio interview the other day to promote the the, the re-release of 1992 and uh, Jim said well you know if someone offered us 2 million we'd probably do it <laughs> and that, that, that was an increase that's, that's, that's inflation because the last time we said something stupid like that it was only a million right like, it's, we doubled our price which is great imagine that it'd be brilliant getting, getting a million pounds for a gig but you know that's that's the kind of thing that Oasis and Blur get isn't it oh yeah each. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past a fan group, though. I could see them doing a petition of some sort. Well, if they can raise two million, that's fine. We'd be happy to take it. We'd be stupid not to, wouldn't we, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, from Abdu Jafarov, you went on to join Ferocious Dog. Can you talk to us about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was funny, that. We did a couple of festivals as well. So one of the festivals we did was Bearded Theory, which is a really good festival. And I've done it loads of times with Abdu. The guy from Ferocious Dog, Dan from Ferocious Dog, came to see Abdu. We were playing in a different tent the same year. And he just came. We had a good chat and we had we took a selfie together on that and didn't think anything of it really. You know, Ferocious Dog thought, yeah, okay. I knew really well. I'd seen them before. And then... I think it was just after Christmas, I got a message from him saying, oh, do you want to join Ferocious Dog? And I thought, okay, I mean, it's not really my genre, really. It's kind of fiddly-diddly folk music mm -hmm. with a punk rock kind of edge to it. Um, and I just said to him, well, I don't think I'm good enough, mm -hmm. you know, because I'd heard them play and they're very kind of technical. Um, and he said, yeah, of course you can, of course you can. I've just seen you play with a car, of course you can do it. And I went, all right then, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for me, it's mainly A minus, C's and G's. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I I played with them for four and a half years, and through the whole kind of them going from playing to maybe 150, 200 people, all the way through to them playing to 2,000, 3,000 people at festivals and stuff um it oh it was great it was great to do that and going through venues that i hadn't played for ages again just revisiting stuff and it was kind of like being on that roller coaster to success again i, I really like that aspect of it but in the end i mean it, it was just a bit too much you know i'm in my 60s and um mm. It was mm -hmm. pretty much all year round. It was just gigging, 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 and traveling as well, you know, because I'm down in Folkestone. Where, uh, you guys in the US, Folkestone is down the bottom of England. And <laughs> 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 Ferocious Dog's kind of main base is pretty much in the middle of England. So everywhere I had to get there first, which was a four or five hour drive, 
and then four 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 hour five hour drive back most of the time and it just it it was basically leaving home on a Wednesday or a Thursday driving up to do the gigs doing all the gigs coming back on the Sunday or the Monday doing my washing turning everything around going back out again for four and a half years basically mm-hmm. and it just got knackering after a while and I really realised that I was really neglecting Ampli Japarov which is you know which is my love you know that's, that, that's why mm-hmm. I've been in that band for 23 years because I love it and, and, and it's the song where I get to be I mean it's, it's the band that I get to be creative and you know write songs and you know it's, it's my baby basically mm-hmm. um, so that was the decision that I got really knackered and um, decided that I wanted to concentrate back on how to again. And that's what I've been doing since since leaving Ferocious Dog, concentrating on uh, writing songs for Abdu and trying to build up the live following again because I kind of let it go and it kind of faltered a little bit. But we're back on that towards getting more and more people coming to gigs now. And uh, it's as I said before, it's just immense fun. It's great fun. So what's um, what's on tap for this year? Pretty much, I mean, um, the the first half of the year is kind of settled. We've got a few gigs. I, I mean, I've got a few gigs. I'm doing solo gigs, and we, me and Richie from Abdu do duos as well. So we've we, we've got a few of those coming up. First half of the year, second half of the year, have no idea at the moment. I've not planned anything. There's a few festivals that are happening. But that's about it at the moment. Um, it, I, I really don't like chasing gigs. I like, I like it when people offer me gigs. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I always find that if someone really wants to put on a gig, wants to put on a gig, they will put a lot of effort into it. Whereas if you ask someone, "Can I play at your venue?" They just rely on you to do everything, all the promo, everything, and inevitably that works out a bit rubbish. So yeah, I mean, if like last year we did, we did a whole set of gigs with a band called Headsticks, to, as a double headliner thing, and we swapped around the headliner thing. That worked really well, and I'd be up for doing something like that again, because you get the combined crowd for both bands, which makes it a viable concern for a gig you know you can fill out venues um and and that was that was also great fun and it's really nice to hang around with other bands as well you know get to see other other songs for a change <laughs> <laughs> do you have any albums or any singles or anything in the works now or i need to write some songs first i did start writing a tune the other day i don't know if it will turn into a song yet it's, it's kind of getting into the right headspace where the way I do it usually, I get myself into the headspace and then I spend a couple of weeks just writing, getting the tunes worked out, and then um, try and find a time where I can get the boys together. Mm-hmm. When we recorded the last album, it was during COVID time, so the boys recorded the the the, the rhythm track separately. Oh right. And uh, we've we via uh, Zoom. I was on Zoom with them when they were recording it. <laughs> no, that bit's wrong. Right. No, no. <laughs> do it that way. I was waving my arms around, pretending to play drums. <laughs> um, and and Johnny was down because Johnny uh, lives down in mm. 
who's a lead guitarist, mm-hmm. he, he lives all the way down in, in um, Lulworth Cove, which is in Devon, basically, which is miles away from anyone. So he did his parts there. We've all got a little recording set up. So then we, I've got someone to mix it. And rather than me mixing it, which is what usually happens, I've got someone to mix it for me. And he did a fantastic job. <laughs> nice one. Well, Les, it's been so good having you on the podcast. It's been good listening to your voice and seeing your lovely face as well. <laughs> you, you as well, sir. Can't wait to uh, meet up again soon. And That'd be good. Yeah, and, don't uh, be such a stranger. What's the matter with you? Come on. <laughs> well, folks, that's a wrap for the Homie Hub. Stay chill, stay curious, and I'll catch you on the flip side. <laughs>